Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, all the attention has been on the cost of oil. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sent wheat and other commodity prices on a wild roller coaster ride as well. And at the end of the day, that may have an even greater impact on consumers' wallets. We'll explain what's happening and why. Also this morning, the University of Findlay's largest annual fundraising event will happen this Thursday. How 24 hours of giving benefits everyone both on and off campus. And happening around town, spring may have just started, but Findlay's Silver Blades have been busy preparing for Sweet Summertime. That's the theme for their 2022 Ice Classics show. We'll get a preview. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Tuesday, March 22nd, 2022. If you need a reason to celebrate, check this out. As Young As You Feel Day. Today is the day you're as young as you feel. It is also World Water Day. National Sing Out Day. Uh, National Agriculture Day today. Uh, It is the International Day of the Seal And my favorite of all, it is National Goof-Off Day. So, although, wouldn't you think that would be more appropriate for a Monday? I mean, isn't that when we all goof off anyway? Mondays and Fridays. (laughs) Mondays after the weekend, uh, you have an excuse not to do anything. You just tell the the boss, hey, it's National Goof-Off Day. Well, you've got that today, so... Uh, Some of the uh, first things you need to know, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to start off your day. Uh, You know, now that spring is here, we start to turn our attention to graduation season. A school district in Arapahoe County, Colorado, will no longer name valedictorians at its high schools, starting with the class of 2026. The Cherry Creek School District notified parents in a recent newsletter about the change, which eliminates the recognition at graduation for the student who has earned the highest GPA in their class. The notification said faculty found that the tradition is no longer no longer appropriate for their students. Quote, the practices of class rank and valedictorian status are outdated and inconsistent with what we know and believe of our students. We believe all students can learn at high levels. And learning is not a competition, unquote. Academic achievements will be recognized in other ways, they say, including an honor roll, GPA honor cords at graduation, and department and school-specific award ceremonies. Now, this is uh, should be noted, this is a uh, district with many high schools uh, in, in the district, not just one. So school-specific award ceremonies. Uh, will be handed out. But no valedictorians. The Cherry Creek School District in Arapahoe County, Colorado, moving forward. What say you about that? No, I don't know how that would go over if... uh, I don't think there are any local schools that have done that. But I know that there are... uh, That seems to be a growing trend uh, around the country. Anyway. Um, Speaking of... uh, Schools, how do kids study today? They Google it. You want to learn anything? You want to study? I remember when I was in school and you had to actually go and open up an encyclopedia. You say that to research a term paper or whatever. You say that to a kid today that said, what is an encyclopedia? What are you talking about? You can get information about nearly anything instantly online, but a new study finds 
that Googling information can actually make you less intelligent in the sense that you'd be more likely to forget things that you have learned compared to reading it in a book. The phenomenon is known as digital amnesia. Some call it the Google effect. Researchers at the University of Cologne, Germany, write, When externally stored information is easily accessible and retrievable, individuals are not inclined to deeply process the details since they can easily look up the information again the next time they need it. So in other words, there's no reason to memorize something, commit it to memory, because you can always just grab your phone and Google it again. So no big deal. Um, The strategic management of knowledge allows individuals to save attentional attentional resources for other day-to-day activities. Which, actually, if you think about that statement, that's not necessarily altogether a bad thing in the sense that maybe our brain is less cluttered on those crazy pieces of information that we'll only need to know once in a blue moon. And instead we can focus all of our gray matter on the day to day stuff that we need to process on an ongoing basis. So maybe in that sense, it may, we may have digital amnesia when it comes to the minutia in our lives, but we should have more common sense. Theoretically, anyway, I know these days common sense isn't so common, but that should be again. I think it goes back. to It's an interesting uh, story, though, this uh, Google effect. Uh, basically, what they're saying is, yes, you can get all of that information online, but we remembered it better when we actually took the encyclopedia off the shelf and cracked it open and looked something up. So actually learned it more. Uh, at least uh, retained it more. Speaking of the Google effect, how about this? What did you What did you dream about last night? Uh, if you are like most people, you probably dreamt about uh, an animal of some kind, or at least there was an animal in your dream. A new study by um, a British me- uh, bed manufacturer. It was a study commissioned by a bed manufacturer. It's kind of a promotional survey. Has unveiled what the most common dream is in every country in the world. By translating the word dream into every language and then analyzing Google search data, the study revealed that countries' most, po- most commonly searched dream subjects they found out in every country in the world what was the most commonly searched dream? Because you ever had that? You had a dream and you think, what did that mean? And you look it up online. So they crunched all of the numbers. And uh, it seems that in the U.S., along with Canada and Australia, we have uh, lots of pretty mild dreams. We don't generally have dreams in this country. What they found is that we don't have a whole lot of dreams with deeper meaning, but the most common dream around the world (laughs) concerned snakes. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why that's just this kind of random. It seems that that would pop up, 
but snakes. At least that's the most searched dream. That may not be what people are dreaming about the most, but that seems to be what people are most concerned with when they wake up the next morning and want to find out what it means, because that's what they search for. The slithery creatures featured as the most common dream in more than one third of all countries in the world from Brazil and India to Kazakhstan and Egypt. Other animal based dreams featured mice, lice, doves, squirrels and fish. Most common dreams in the world. All right, then. Um... Here's our uh, daily pandemic story. There's always something in the uh, pandemic. This is actually good news. A new study finds that the genetic testing of saliva samples identifies COVID-19 more quickly than testing of nasal swabs. This is important, says the co-author of the study, Dr. Donald Milton, because people can spread COVID-19 before they know they have it. So earlier detection can reduce the spread. Of the disease. A little late to the party here, uh, Doc. Uh, in this uh, research from the University of Maryland, it said early in the course of infection, saliva more significantly sensitive than nasal swabs. And even before the onset of symptoms, saliva can give you faster results. You know, that's been the worst part of this pandemic. More than anything else, I think, if you've ever been tested... Uh, with one of those nasal swabs, that is just awful. It is just a, an awful procedure, an awful experience. If you've never been tested, count yourself lucky that you haven't had to do this. And if you had uh, one of those nasal swabs, you know what I'm talking about. It seems like they're scraping your brain. So this is good good news. Again, maybe a little late, but uh, researchers note that se- uh, saliva self-testing Avoids the close contact between patient and healthcare worker in that nasal swabbing that nasal and swabbing entails and avoids causing the patients to cough and sneeze, thereby spreading the virus if they had it have it, which is kind of counterproductive when you really think about it. Also helps patients avoid the discomfort of a nasal swab. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's it is awful. Uh, Dr. Milton says we expect that if rapid saliva tests become available, they could be a major advance from the current nasal swab based rapid tests. So wish we had this about a year ago. Thanks, Doc. But better late than never, I guess. And how about this? This may be the most important, most significant story you hear today. And you heard it here first. McDonald's is bringing back its Szechuan sauce. Beginning March 31st, Szechuan sauce will be available exclusively on the McDonald's app. And it'll only be for a few days while supplies last. You'll be able to choose it as a dipping sauce with the purchase of chicken nuggets. You'll also be able to purchase up to five packets of the Szechuan sauce a la carte. So stock up. This is only the Fourth time in the past two decades that they have made. I mean, Szechuan sauce is even more elusive than the fabled McRib sandwich, which they bring back from time to time. This is even rarer. Uh, The last time it appeared on the menu was February of 2018. So, stock up beginning March 31st. There you go. Like I said, that is the (laughs) most significant. I know my wife is going to be. 
really thrilled. There you go. The most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, cloudy conditions today, showers possible in the afternoon, high of 57, showers likely tonight, low of 51. A bridge replacement project will force some Finley drivers to take a detour throughout the spring and summer. The Hancock County Engineer's Office says the Olive Street Bridge over Eagle Creek in Finley is being replaced to meet current bridge standards. The bridge is on Olive Street between Park Street and Marion Township Road 201. The project will begin today and last until approximately early September. Olive Street will be closed between Park Street and Marion Township 201 while the bridge is being constructed. The Ohio Redistricting Commission has decided to look for two independent map makers and a mediator to help come up with new district maps. The decision comes following the Ohio Supreme Court's rejection of a third set of maps presented by the Republican-dominated panel. The current map makers and one staff member of each commissioner are to immediately begin meeting to identify complex issues and areas of agreement and disagreement. The state's highest court ruled four to three last week. The latest maps were intended to overwhelmingly favor Republicans and disfavor Democrats. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. Finley's Glenwood Middle School will be holding a disability awareness event this week. We just want people to be aware that they're just students just like anybody else, and they like to be included in everything. Occupational therapist Trisha Klausing says students will rotate through six stations to get an idea of what it's like to have a disability. She says she's seen firsthand the benefits of holding events like this. We've noticed that there's this increased interactions in the hallways, saying hi to them as they're walking down the hall, maybe trying to talk to them and just ask them some questions. So overall, it's been a positive impact on students and teachers alike. Get more of our conversation with Trisha about the event on the website. The Finley Police Department has hired two new police officers. Jacob Frank and Jacob Hollis have been sworn in by the mayor. Jacob Frank is 23 years old and is from Maumee, while Jacob Hollis is 31 and is from Johnstown. You can see pictures of both and learn more about them on the website. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchek with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. So this is National Ag Week, and that leads us to our cover story this morning. A friend of mine uh, pointed out something to me recently. While all of the attention has been on the cost of oil over the past month or so, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sent wheat and other commodity prices on a wild roller coaster ride as well. And in the long run, that could possibly have an even greater impact on consumers' wallets. Chad Rosebrook is a grain merchandiser for Legacy Farmers Cooperative, and we've invited him to join us via Zoom this morning to help explain to us non-ag experts uh, what's going on and why should we should be paying attention to it. And Chad, the Wall Street Journal had a piece on this recently, and the reason I say this could ultimately have an even greater impact uh, on everyday consumers I can control to a certain extent the amount of oil that I use. If I uh, if I don't if I work from home more often, or if I uh, uh, combine shopping trips or whatever, uh, I can to a certain extent control the amount of gas that I use. But we all got to eat, and wheat uh, I'm told uh, comprises like twenty percent of all of the calories we consume in some form or another. So this is you know this is really. Uh, important, significant for everybody to take note of. Yeah, that's that's correct. And uh, before I get into too much detail, I wanted to start this discussion by stating, you know, the United States is still the most food secure nation in the world. 
And uh, thank goodness for that. You know, that is something to be thankful for um, because, yeah, you're right. The, the war in Ukraine is going to have, have an impact on, on world food prices for sure. And it, you make a good point, too, is that we are not in the same position with wheat and food as we are with oil. But from what I'm given to understand, uh, you saw a huge run up in prices at the start of the Ukraine invasion and then a sharp drop off. What exactly is going on with these prices? Yeah, so these these prices are uh, at a time right now, still three weeks uh, into the war. We're, we're enduring a lot of volatility in our world commodity prices, uh, re- regardless if it's energy or food. Um, the, the commodity sector has been hit with a lot of volatility. And what's happened as, as the Russia-Ukraine war started, uh, we saw almost $8.5 billion flood into the commodity sector um, just in that week alone when the, when the war started. Hmm. And a lot of that money went straight into to food commodities, grains and, and wheat being the main, the main one. Uh, so the wheat market had traded up the limit quite a few sessions in a row um, and, uh, and rallied about $3 to $4 stretch there in about a week, which was a, a move that, that none of us in the grain world had, had seen before. Um, we've we've seen moves like this, but but not to this uh, severity. And then that was followed by, like we said, a a sharp drop off in prices. What precipitated that? Was it just an over overheated market? Yeah, I think that I think that's right. You know, when you when you have uh, a market that's trading up the limit, uh, the price discovery doesn't happen because we we can't define a value or a price for those commodities that are up the limit. And wheat was was the main one. Um, and then, yeah, that, that in itself leads to a lot of volatility. Um, and also, too, when, when markets are this sensitive to world news right now, everybody everybody who's trading grains is, is hanging on to every ounce of news we get out of the Russia-Ukraine thing. So, uh, you know, you, you have the initial invasion, the initial attacks in Ukraine, but then short, short time later, we had, hey, there's going to be peace talks. So um, the market is just so sensitive to the news right now. And any any little thing can send it one way or the other yeah. pretty drastically. Just like we've seen with the stock market. Um, and, and you point out that this is not just wheat, as you use the word grains. I mean, uh, corn and barley, I understand, are among the other commodities that have seen these wild swings. And experts say that it will trickle down to things like meat and eggs as well. Yeah, potentially. Um, you know, the... and. Like I said before, you know, the good thing is here in the U.S., we, we are one of the most food secure nations in the world. So I think the relative impact of the war itself on our food prices here in the United States is going to be somewhat limited. Um, you know, there, there will be, a, I think, you know, before the war even started, we were fighting some some inflation uh, in, right. in the commodity sector overall, whether it be fertilizers, grains or, or food products on the grocery shelves. Um, and that inflation certainly is not going away with, with the war in Ukraine. Um, so here in the U.S., I think our food price inflation that we're going to see is going to be more directly correlated to the inflation we were already feeling, okay. uh, which is going to be exaggerated by, by fuel prices <clears throat> and, and, the, and supply chain disruptions. Um, but if you're a country like Egypt or, uh, or an Asian Pacific nation, uh, that relies on on wheat and grains from the Black Sea region. That you, they're going to see a substantial increase in in, in food prices. Well, that sure. was that was going to be one of my other questions. How much of the global supply is tied to both Russia and Ukraine? So it, you know, it depends on the commodities we're talking about. But wheat being the main focus, uh, Russia is the world's largest wheat exporter. 
And Ukraine is about the fifth largest world exporter of wheat. Uh, combined, it, it accounts for somewhere between 25 to 30% of the world's wheat that gets exported. So, and again, coming out of the Black Sea region, a lot of that wheat is going to go to areas that are closest to the Black Sea region, like Northern Africa and the Asian Pacific region. So not to wade too deeply into the politics of the uh, conflict, but you know we've heard the stories about how difficult it is for uh, places like the EU to completely cut off the supply of oil and gas coming out of Russia because it's their main source. Um, here's another uh, monkey wrench in terms of isolating Russia uh, is a little bit easier said than done for those countries that rely on them for their food source. That's correct. And and just, and just like you stated earlier, um, you know, you can kind of control your, your gasoline demand, your gasoline usage a little bit, but at right. the end of the day, uh, pe- people got to eat. And, uh, and, and those countries that are most acceptable to this, you know, I don't know if they have a choice in, in, in how they, how they interact with Russia um, and, and as far as where their, where their wheat comes from or their grains come from. Now, as you were mentioning, we are in this country blessed to be pretty much uh, food secure, but these are, in fact, global markets. Uh, so this is going to have some impact uh, on us here uh, at home. And again, if uh, you've got uh, countries that are no longer importing uh, food commodities from Russia, they're going to have to get it from somewhere else. So that could potentially squeeze the supply globally as well. Absolutely. And, and we're already seeing that a little bit here locally with our own grain demand uh, a little bit. Um, so if you're a European nation who used to get a lot of your, your wheat or grains from, from Ukraine and Russia um, as well, you know, right now um, there's not a lot of grain leaving Ukraine because of the ports being all blocked and their infrastructure being badly damaged. And, the, you know, if the ports are blocked and we can't ship grain out of Ukraine by boat, the railroad would be the next way to get grain out of Ukraine. And, and you know, we're hearing reports all the time that the railroad is, you know, on, taking some damages and right. undergoing some, some issues there. Uh, but also, too, if you're a European nation, you've likely isolated Russia. So now you're not going to buy, buy commodities from them. Um, you know, as much as you can, just like we in the U.S. have. So so that, that has to come from somewhere else. And we're already seeing some export business uh, switch to the United States uh, to where some European countries might look to buy some, some grain from the U.S. Now, I know uh, wheat here locally is mostly what a, a, a winter crop. Um, it, does this ha- have the potential to change uh, what people decide to plant locally based on uh, this anticipated demand? I mean, is this going to kind of throw a monkey wrench in the equilibrium <laughs> locally? Yeah, you know, it potentially could. You know, I, I don't know that anything's really going to change too much this spring because, you know, a lot of the inputs and a lot of those those decisions on acres have already been decided. And we're really just waiting for the weather to break loose here so we can get in the field and get planting. But uh, certainly by the time we get to uh, this coming September, um, when we start to look at wheat acreage for 2023, you know, if, if wheat prices, you know, futures prices, the, ultimately the, the flat price that the farmer receives, you know, if these prices are still at these elevated levels, you know, we could see um, quite a bit of wheat get planted this fall, which would, you know, impact our spring mix for, for 2023. And as we said, we don't want to, you know, create panic or, or undo, uh, you know, concern about this, but 
Uh, it is something we need to pay attention to. And how critical is this concern the longer this goes on? I understand uh, Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack uh, was in on a meeting of his peers involving the other G7 nations, uh, ag leaders in the G7 nations uh, here recently. So again, just demonstrates this is a global issue and it is a, an area of concern. The longer this goes on, how much more critical does this become? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think that's the thing that world leaders are trying to figure out. But at the end of the day, we know this, that every day that goes by, there's so much demand for, for wheat, corn, beans, or whatever the commodity is. And every day that goes by that we're not exporting out of Ukraine or exporting out of Russia uh, becomes another day's worth of demand we got to find supply for somewhere. So the longer it, it goes on, you know, the more the more drastic it, it could be. Um, also, too, you know, a lot of attention is being paid to the Ukrainian farmer right now as their growing seasons match up pretty closely with ours. You know, they're getting ready to hit the fields and try to plant their crop as well. Um, but, you know, they're finding issues with with finding enough diesel to power the tractors or whether that be getting fertilizer or herbicides right. and pesticides to the farms. Um, they have just massive uh, supply chain issues there, too, to overcome. And so there are a lot of questions on how many acres will get planted this spring in Ukraine and ultimately how many acres will be harvested. And then, you know, if, if there's enough of a surplus in Ukraine to be exported, how does that get out of the country? And, and those are just, you know, a lot of questions we don't have answers to today, but the outlook's not great. Again, uh, Chad Rosebrook is a grain merchandiser for Legacy Farmers Cooperative. Another aspect of this story that we really do need to be paying attention to. Chad, thanks very much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. As we were mentioning earlier, this is National Ag Week in our Everyday Agriculture Report this morning. We know that the pandemic dramatically changed uh, Americans' food buying and food consuming habits. The big question is how much of that change will be permanent now that the pandemic is easing. Even though hopefully the COVID pandemic is winding down. This kind of once in a lifetime impact of the pandemic um, is going to be built into behavior for a long time to come. Especially as far as how we eat our meals and buy our food. That's Andy Herrig with the Food Marketing Institute. His group does scores of consumer interviews and surveys to gauge what's going on in the world of food. Now, during the pandemic, consumer interest in preparing healthy meals at home increased dramatically. But now that things are opening back up, restaurants are coming back, what are attitudes now? Andy Herrig's group did a survey that shows maybe some of the healthy eating interest is still with us. More and more people, 48% say they're going to try to eat healthfully more. More meals at home, 47%. So despite having been forced to eat at home, they have actually adapted well and enjoyed this aspect of it. And even though restaurants are open now, 44% of the survey respondents said they intend to make more trips to the grocery store each week from now on. You know, we've seen a big rise in online shopping, but um, we also see a real anxiousness to get back to the store to make some of their own choices for themselves. But another 42% said they intend to go out to eat more than they did pre-COVID. Obviously, there's a fair amount of fatigue on the meal prep and, uh, you know, kind of eating all those meals at home. I think the real opportunity is going to lie on both the food service and the food retail side of people who can address that kind of need for convenience, that need to help them eat healthfully, that need for affordability. Online grocery shopping certainly did take off during the pandemic. The numbers, though, are all over the place. We saw one study that showed that in 2019, about 11.5% of food shoppers had ordered at least some grocery items online. By March of last year, that was up to almost 28%. 
Part of that was by necessity, of course. Andy Harrig's more recent survey is trying to get at how likely we are to keep buying groceries online by asking about our attitudes toward doing that. And the answers are a little ambiguous. For example, 35% of people say they like in-store and online shopping equally. But as far as grocery shopping at the store? 18% think it's a chore. 33% don't mind doing it. 18% love doing it. So you see that balance there. And what about attitudes toward online grocery shopping? One third of the folks say they prefer not to do it at all. And only 17% say they like it. And with 20% saying they don't mind doing it. But by age group, millennial folks, currently the 26 to 41 years old group. Those folks have really gone to online shopping. And he says they are not likely to go back to a lot of grocery store shopping unless it's for meats or fresh produce. Andy Harrig says this trend toward more online shopping could change the nature of grocery stores, what they offer and how they offer it. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. That you got my takeaway in that uh, whole thing. And if you've got about half the people who say, oh, I'm going to eat uh, at home more often now moving forward post-pandemic, and then you've got another half saying, oh, I'm going to eat out more often uh, post-pandemic, then at the end of the day, the uh, sales numbers, both uh, restaurant and retail food purchases, uh, probably shake out about the same. But who's doing the buying uh, at what level and uh, what their expectations are may change. And uh, successful restaurants, retail establishments, uh, grocery stores, and so on will have to adapt to those changes in order to get back to where they were with respect to uh, sales uh, before all of this started. So kind of interesting stuff. Today's Everyday Agriculture Report. <music> Coming up on Thursday, the University of Findlay has a big fundraising event, 24 Hours of Giving, they call it, and Brittany Belts is the University of Findlay Assistant Director of Annual Giving and Stewardship Manager, uh, joining us this morning to uh, tell us more about it. In fact, Brittany, this is the biggest fundraiser uh, of the year. Is that right? That is correct. It is UF's most impactful 24 hours, where we ask our Oiler Nation family, friends, students, and alums to hashtag Oiler Up, give back. And this is something that, I mean, when you think about a fundraiser, I mean, the first thing that people always think of is scholarships and, and, and so on. And, and this does go partly to that, but there it also supports programs that benefit uh, students in many ways on campus and even the community off campus. Definitely. So donors create opportunities for the experiential hands-on learning for our students. So scholarships definitely play a very large part in that. And they provide the tools to prepare our students for a meaningful life and productive career. So what are some of the ways in which, and I understand to give people some sort of uh, perspective, and uh, we talk about this being the uh, largest fundraiser, I think last year, according to the website, a uh, better part of a quarter million dollars was raised uh, in just this one 24-hour period. So uh, what are some of the programs where these funds are put to use then? Definitely. So as you mentioned, scholarships, the Finley Fund is the most impactful for our students. We have each of the colleges um, 
that are raising funds as well, athletics, the Mazin Museum, Campus Ministries. There is just very many um, areas to support that you're passionate about. So each of the uh, colleges, many of the entities are doing their own fundraisers. Then is there kind of a general fundraiser uh, as well that's kind of going on? Or do people kind of need to pick and choose their how they support? Or can they do both? They can do both, yes. So the Finley Fund is the general operational support for the University of Finley. Okay. And and then, as you said, there are individual uh, fund. How many of these programs? Uh, because you mention uh, the Mazza Museum, uh, there are other, uh, I guess, uh, organizations and, and groups on campus. You know, but that was the one that immediately jumped out because we talked about the Mazza Museum and people are familiar with that. But um, how many of these would? not exist i mean i would imagine there were some of them would still exist but maybe uh, dramatically reduced uh, funding levels were it not for these are there any programs that simply wouldn't be able to continue or not for you know, things like this definitely we have um some very strong donor support for a lot of our programs um and they wouldn't be where they're at today without that support um the as you mentioned, most uh, mostly uh, you look at uh, alumni and uh, and such, but this is something that anyone in the community can uh, participate in. Definitely, we have a lot of um, unaffiliated, not not necessarily alums, just community members that are really passionate about the University of Findlay. Um, we actually also have a generous donor that is putting up a twenty five thousand dollar match to make your gift go even further. And how do folks then uh, become a part of this? How do they uh, reach out and and become a part of the 24 hours of giving? Well, so there's a couple options. So you can go online to dayofgiving.finley.edu. You can stop by our office. We're on the second floor of Weinbrenner on the University of Finley's campus. Um, If you're uh, interested, you can send in cash or a check, or even you can call me at 419-434-5653. And we can allocate your gift to an area you're passionate about. Now, and and that's uh, important, too, because uh, we're talking about this kind of in general terms. And uh, I, I'm sure that the list is quite exhaustive. Uh, so I won't ask you to run through the entire list when we talk about uh, supporting uh, the arts and, and athletics and social clubs and, and so on. Are there some other examples, specifics uh, of uh, organizations, clubs and activities and such uh, that are a part of this? Definitely. So something I'm um, especially passionate about is our planetarium. A lot of people don't know that the planetarium exists right on campus. So I think that's an, uh, a fun and unique um, option. And I'm I'm planning to give to that as well. <laughs> and, you know, again, there are other uh, times we mentioned the Mazza Museum. We have the folks from the Mazza Museum uh, here. Folks are familiar with Fun Day Sunday and, and you know, programs like that. Uh, we often have the uh, folks in the Student Activities Board. Sharna Welton is uh, with us a number of times uh, talking about events uh, that are going on. Comedy Jam is very uh, familiar. So again, these are some of those uh, things as well. Yep, you can support your area of passion, and um, it will definitely make a difference. And the students get a lot of, again, as we have talked about with the Student Activities Board as a, as a perfect example, uh, kids get a lot out of this. The students, uh, beyond uh, the academics, uh, beyond just the fun aspect of it, there is a lot of learning that goes on uh, with those and the experience uh 
really is very, is very important to the to the whole campus experience. Definitely. We are so grateful for our donors um, that go above and beyond to impact our students' experience. So again, if folks want to uh, take part, this is coming up on Thursday, the 24 Hours of Giving. How do they go about doing that? dayofgiving.finley.edu will give you all the information you need. And if you are um, looking to make a gift, there's a large Give Now button. It's orange, so you can't miss it. (laughs) (laughs) It is such a a tremendous uh, asset to the community, uh, one certainly worth uh, supporting. We've got the link up on our webpage for more information. Again, Brittany Belts is the Assistant Director of Annual Giving and Stewardship Manager at the University of Finley. Brittany, thanks very much for dropping by. Thanks so much, Chris. 24 hours of giving coming up on Thursday. Go to goodmornings.net to learn more. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Uh, <laughs> a British woman. This is kind of a public service announcement in the uh, broken news this morning. If you can help out, you're encouraged to uh, speak up here. A British woman is trying to track down the man whose name she spontaneously tattooed on her posterior during <laughs> during a girl's trip back in 2012. Ten years ago, Kaylee Williams, who is now 32, was on vacation with four gal pals in Spain when she met the mystery man and his male friends on a wild night out. <laughs> Uh, the man offered to pay $33 for Ms. Williams to have his name inked on her booty, and she drunkenly agreed. <laughs> and now she has the name Daniel Ford tattooed on her posterior for all time. She said, on one night out, we saw a group of uh, lads from Cardiff, Wales. They were all dressed as babies getting tattoos. They had diapers on and everything. She further recalled the guy who I got to chatting with said, why don't you have my name tattooed on you and I'll pay for it. The party girl woke up the next morning with both a hangover and the words Daniel Ford inked on her behind. (laughs) But Daniel himself was nowhere to be found. He was staying at the same hotel, she said. At least she thought he was. But uh, if he was, he left that day, that night, was the last I ever saw of him. So now she's trying to track him down on social media just to uh, check in, I suppose. (laughs) That sounds like a story uh, would happen out of Vegas. You know, I mean, that's got to (laughs) be... Oh, my goodness. And be careful. And and this is the the funny part to me is she meets, meets these guys... And they're all dressed as babies in diapers, getting tattoos. (laughs) And she thought, what the heck? This is a person I will listen to when they say when he says, get my name tattooed on you. (laughs) I would think that that would be a clear signal to steer clear of that bunch. You know, that would. but who knows? Anyway, (laughs) Uh, this isn't something you hear every day. Weird story out of Indiana, 23-year-old Bethany Collins says after she went into labor with her daughter, uh, her eye popped out. During labor, her eye popped out of her uh, her socket. Um, She said 
she felt an intense pressure in her left eye by the time she was being stitched up after it was all over. Her high eye started poking out more and more. The next day, an optometrist came to examine her eye and said he had never seen anything like it before. Ms. Collins says ultimately the final verdict was that there was just a lot of pressure from the force of, of pushing. Uh, the doctor said to wait and see if it would just settle back in to its eye socket. And she did notice improvement at about two weeks in, uh, but it felt like she had a black eye. It was protruding and bruised. Took a total of six weeks for her eye to return to normal, but fortunately without surgery. Uh, her post about her experience gone viral on TikTok. I didn't even know that that was a thing. That's pretty scary. Uh, let's see here. What else is going on in the uh, broken news? This is uh, from Canada. Uh, police are investigating a possible hate crime after wor- worshippers at a mosque in Mississauga subdued a man wielding a hatchet during a prayer service. Muhammad Moiz Omar was arrested at the Dar al Tawid Islamic Center Saturday morning after he discharged bear spray and brandished a hatchet. Worshippers were able to restrain Mr. Omar until police arrived. A statement from the mosque said the 24-year-old was armed with numerous other sharp-edged weapons. Might have been a hate crime. Might have been. <laughs> wow. Uh, Police said the assault uh, appeared to be an isolated incident. It's about uh, 15 miles outside of Toronto. A crazy story. Uh, Let's see here. Another item from uh, the lost and found here. And you would think that this would be missed. The Barclay Pizza and Prosecco, a restaurant in England, said workers were cleaning up on Sunday when they found a full set of dentures. On the floor in the bar area, <laughs> the restaurant, the, <laughs> how did they get there? Uh, the owner of the restaurant posted a photo on Facebook showing a bag that employee had labeled teeth Saturday, March 19th. <laughs> the uh, proprietor of the restaurant said, I particularly wanted to post it because someone is definitely missing them. I'm not sure if uh, <laughs> my dentures ended up on the floor in a bar, whether I'd want them back. You know what I mean? I just don't know that. <clears throat> you know what? I'll get another set. Thanks very much. And finally, in the uh, broken news this morning, New Milford, Connecticut, a couple of pigs were caught on video fighting off a bear that jumped into their pen. The pig's owner, Kevin David, caught the incident on his ring doorbell video camera, which he then sent to a local news affiliate saying, fortunately, the pigs are fine. There are some heavy pigs, and we're pretty sure that that bear is still a cub. Now, the bear had no idea the fight that he was picking there with the pigs. Um, <laughs> Kevin also believes that the bear may not have been trying to attack the pigs, but maybe actually were going, af- going after what the pig was digging for, looking for uh, food. Might not have been the pigs uh, themselves, but nonetheless, two of his pigs fought off a bear. Video of this out there. That must be some incredible video. I've not seen it, but got to check that out. There you go. Uh, Some of the uh, 
Most odd and unusual stories. Today's broken news report uh, brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Want to stay up to date with the latest news in Finley and Hancock County? What about important community events? Don't be the last person to know about breaking information. This is WFIN News Director Matt Demchek. Like the WFIN Facebook page, and while you're there, make sure to check out all the videos, pictures, and news. You'll get instant notification whenever we're on the scene of breaking news. Stay on top of all the important information you and your family need to know with the WFIN Facebook page and WFIN.com. Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Uh, the cancel culture uh, has been very much in the news, much lamented uh, recently. Recent poll uh, looked at how what's been dubbed cancel culture and political partisanship affect free speech in the U.S. Uh, this is a New York Times uh, Siena College opinion poll, and in it they found that more than half of the respondents, 55%, said that there was a time over the course of the past year when they had refrained from speaking out because of fear of backlash. More than half of, uh, of people say they just keep their mouth shut because they don't want to deal with the backlash. About a half of those in the poll who said that they had experienced this said that they were afraid of retaliation. About two-thirds wanted to avoid harsh criticism and nearly all were trying to avoid conflict. Dan Le- Levy, uh, director of the Siena College Research Institute, says there is a reticence for people to simply say, this is how I see the issues of the day. This is what I'm thinking. And basically he's saying that we are being shut down in our ability to freely express ourselves. Now, nearly one quarter of respondents also admitted that they that they themselves have retaliated against or shut down someone else who was speaking their views. And it makes you wonder if this uh, idea of, I don't know, inclusiveness, tolerance, or whatever is coming at the price of free speech. And how do we have a vibrant uh, political debate and discussion, which is so healthy for a democracy, in an era where we are so wrapped up in the cancel culture? Um at what point, at what price does this inclusiveness or tolerance come? Something worth thinking about. Well, here we are just a few days into the spring season, and already Findlay's Silver Blades have been busy preparing for sweet summertime. That is the theme of their 2022 Ice Classics show, which is coming up this weekend. Amy Bose, Tony Altvader uh, from Silver Blades with us this morning in the studio. Ladies, thanks very much for dropping by. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, so this is uh, what I think the 152nd annual uh, ice show. Isn't it something like that? I mean, it's, uh, it's been <laughs> Feels going. like it. <laughs> Feels like it, but it's actually the 46th. The 46th. Would have been 47th if we hadn't had to shut down in 2020. Well, that's what I was going to say. Uh, you know, this is another one of those things, uh, an annual tradition. I know everybody looks forward to the kids, uh, you know, prepare for, you know, all year around and look forward to this and uh, had to go away for uh, a little while because of the pandemic so how great is it to have this back again absolutely the kids are so excited yeah so uh sweet summertime is the theme tell us all about the show 
Well, actually, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We've come off of a really hard Ohio winter. So, you know, come down, enjoy, see kids at a picnic, at a county fair, enjoy singing in the rain, thunderstorms. I mean, you, you name it. We've okay. got it for the sweet summertime ice cream trucks. So Sitting just, on the dock of the bay yeah. and wipe out. <laughs> so this is all uh, all of the performances kind of centered around this summertime theme. Is this something that uh, the the skaters themselves have you know some input onto you know how they want to do you know what kind of a show they want to put on or is that uh, are they involved in the in selecting the theme and things like that? Um, we actually have an application process at the beginning of our season. So okay. anyone that would like to apply to um, present a show theme is able to. I see. In the okay. past, we have had student skaters present um, ideas. Okay. Um, the board will go through. We get the ideas. It's anonymous, and we choose a theme, and then okay. whoever had submitted that theme becomes our show director oh, for that's the really, season. That's really cool. Um, this year is our head pro, Christy Ronkowitz and Molly um, Smith. I said Molly Kerr. She's got married. <laughs> um, and they have been show directors for quite a number of uh, performances that we've done. Um, but yeah, it, the kids love it. They love the um, atmosphere. We have a great big wall in the back that's painted up with our theme and programs and t-shirts and costumes that match the, the songs everybody puts an awful lot of time and effort into uh, putting this show not the least of which uh, are the skaters themselves who uh, work tirelessly to uh, put this on for those who have not been uh, to one of the uh, ice classic shows in the past talk a little bit about you know the the structure of the show it's uh, kids you have some special guests that come in and and all we that, do so. we have guest skaters this year this year we have Eva Pat and Logan Bai, they are d- a dance team on US, the Team USA. Mm-hmm. They've actually just placed eighth in um, the U.S. Figure Skating National Championships. Wow. We also have a local favorite, Pearl Rojas. She used to train out of Bowling Green. Uh, now she's up in Michigan. She skated with a lot of our skaters, so they're all excited to see her again. So we have their guest skaters and Yep, and then our skaters this year has actually been a lot of fun. We have taken our club all the way down to two-year-olds. We used to four used to be our cutoff. Wow. Um, we had some littles come out this year, and my golly, they took to the ice like they had just been there forever. <laughs> so we do have some very young skaters. We go all the way up to age eighteen. Wow. We have five seniors this year that we're going to miss terribly, but you know it's their time to shine. So. Yeah, we're real excited. How many uh, how many kids are, are involved uh, all total? We have sixty six in this year's 66. show. Sixty mm-hmm. six. That's a lot of uh, kids, especially you get down now. Will the the two year olds be part of the show as well? Absolutely. Oh, yes. oh, so they're going to oh, be uh, highlights. Oh, <laughs> you are going to want to see them in their teddy bear picnic with their teddy bears and their wagons. Very good. <laughs> uh, although it might make me feel a little uh, insecure because uh, in my uh, skating skills, I do uh, a lot of ice falling. Uh, so, uh, in any event, uh, this and this is a year-round uh, thing, right? I mean, they, Finley, when do they so start? Fin- when do they? When do they start pre- preparing for the show? We start prepare um, preparation of the show the first week of February. Okay. So from February to the end of March, that's when we're in show prep. Our season the, the starts typically at the beginning of October mm-hmm. and goes to the end of the show. That is our total season. Okay. So we have kids that are learning skating, the basics, the different f- from September. We offer classes in September and May, mm-hmm. but our season starts in October, and then we ramp up for the show in February. So this is kind of your Super Bowl then. This the, is our 
our the Super end, Bowl. The end of the, you know, the big culmination. This uh, is of the absolutely. Season. We have skaters that like to go to competitions, and we have skaters that that's not their preference. So they get to shine for their family and friends in our show. That's interesting too. You bring that up. It, it, this is not uh, all entirely uh, competitive. Some uh, the kids are just out. And I know that there are a lot of uh, skaters uh, that have been part of uh, Silver Blades in the past that have gone on to you know bigger and better things you know beyond in in college and even beyond that but it's not all that right and that's what i really like about figure skating um i've actually been involved in the sport since 2008 when my daughter started skating Mm -hmm. um so i've been a part of the club for quite some time now but what i've really loved about skating is that it is an individual sport and you can progress at your own level, mm-hmm. but you have the team atmosphere. Yeah. So you have those friends that are skating beside you, cheering you on. You can do competitions. We have synchronized skating teams. So if you actually want to be on a team, you can be a part of that. So it really does help every child at every skill level. You don't have to be out there doing an axle. You don't have to be doing your sits. But you can... You can really excel at whatever level you're and comfortable with. And take this, with. Uh, you know, at your own pace. And to that end, you also don't necessarily have to get involved when you're two years old. Correct. No, <laughs> well, and I'll tell you, my kids are a good example. My daughter, my older daughter started when she was nine. Okay. And her little sister, who was three, just kind of happened to come along. Yeah. So it, and they both, both enjoyed the club. They both had their friends in the club, made their way through. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, you don't you don't have to start as a young child. Some of these sports now, if you don't start in kindergarten, right, you're well, not going to ever excel. And skating's not that way. Yeah, one of our graduating seniors just started four years ago. Wow. So the reason I bring all of that up is to uh, mention that if, if folks are interested, if uh, they have a uh, son or daughter that is uh, interested in becoming a part of this, how do they go about doing it? You want to go to our website, which is um, finleysilverblades.com. Mm-hmm. There are links and buttons that you push on, and you can uh, apply for membership. Or if you just want information, email us at info at finleysilverblades.com, and I will get back to you. And uh, you mentioned you've got uh, classes and the season, ahead of the season starting and, and all of that. So this is a really good time to yeah. start looking but at that. But come see the show, because that gives you a and really good idea of what this is, what what kind of fun you can have. And yeah. in the meantime, uh, Sweet Summertime, the uh, Ice Classics 2022 show is coming up this weekend. Give us the details on that. Okay. Well, we have a dress rehearsal Thursday evening. So we do have that set aside for the elderly or people okay. who um, are a little bit more health conscious and want the bigger spacing with the audience. Um, so if you are immune compromised, you're welcome to attend our dress rehearsal Thursday evening starting at 6. Um, our first performance will be Friday starting at 7. Doors will open at 6. Saturday, 7 p.m. And then Sunday, we have our matinee at 2. Okay. So doors open an hour before performance. You can buy tickets at the door, or if you'd like reserved tickets, you can also purchase those online at VinleySilverPlates.com. Which we have linked up at our webpage. We want to check that out online at GoodMornings.net. Again, uh, Amy Bowes, Tony Altpater from uh, Finley Silverblades, uh, the uh, Ice Classic Show, Sweet Summertime, coming up this weekend. Ladies, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having us. Always look forward to the show. And that will finish off our podcast for today. Thanks again to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. And that, of course, 
course, is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow, we have what you need to know about Ohio Spring Severe Weather Awareness Week ahead of tomorrow's statewide tornado drill. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.